0: This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg
1: Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly.
2: And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to a special edition of the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. In this episode, our favorite interviews from the 20th Annual NBA All-Star Technology Summit in Charlotte, North Carolina.
1: And Carol, we had such a blast in Charlotte. So many interesting conversations. You know, this is the sort of thing that you hear it on the surface, like, uh, okay, they're going to talk about technology. The reality is all (laughs) the owners show up, a bunch of former players, a bunch of current players, because this is where the future is going. And it's a reminder, the NBA is looking around the corner.
2: And I've got to say, what's interesting too, it's a unique invitation only group to explore the trends and innovation in sports media and technology. And Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, he started this 20 years ago and people weren't really talking about sports and
1: technology. He really was ahead of the curve. It's a great nexus between investing, and technology.
2: Also, the NBA All-Star Tech Summit. And I got to say, NBA fans stopping when they see this guy. We're talking about super agent Rich Paul, founder and CEO at Clutch Sports Group, who, as you know, Jason, represents LeBron James.
1: LeBron James, Anthony Davis, John Wall, so many more. He is a prime mover when it comes to where basketball is going as a business. Listen in.
3: For us, it's, it's very simple. You know, we, the game is everything for us. And that's, that's our That's what we focus on. So we try to educate um, the new players coming into the league and their families to have a a very realistic evaluation of what's actually um, available to them. This whole notion of marketing, people sell that because in their mind, this is what families want to hear, this is what kids want to see. You always dream of having your face on TV. And I tell people all the time, there's no brand out there that's going to pay you $200 million but your team will. So if it's about, what it's about? It's about notoriety? If it's about notoriety, then, then let's just buy billboards around your, the city you're playing in, and put your face up there, and let's focus on the game. Because the game is everything. It's gonna bring forth everything. And so, nine times out of 10, when you get drafted to a team, the it player is already there. Right. He's the player. And so coming in, you're not gonna have the opportunities available to you that you may think, or that your family may think. But If your game grows, take Steph Curry for instance. Steph Curry, game, evolve, year seven, MVP, champion, his business grew. That's how that works, you know. um, Everybody can't be LeBron coming in in a time where he had a 100 million dollar contract to start and he had deals to start, but that's timing. Think of where the game of basketball was at then. Think about the, the guys that the game of basketball lost. He was his new guy. Social media hurts opportunities because everyone's a personality today. So I just saw Jalen Rose and Stephen A. Smith on a McDonald's commercial. Well, 10 years ago, that's an athlete. But now the brands aren't necessarily spending the money on the athlete because they didn't. They don't need to align with someone who's going to be on TV. Person. Everyone's on TV. Right. The smartphone is the new TV. Right. So the the three year partnership of yesterday has became six tweets, two stories on Instagram today. Right. That's a six-month deal.
2: It's so, not- Rich, but for somebody like LeBron, right, who is so established, who's put his heart and soul and time into the game, right? I mean, what are the conversations you have with him, though, about his brand? And then how do you play it in this kind of evolved environment? Well,
3: with LeBron, since we've been a young, very young man at a very young age, we've always thought about doing Partnerships that align with who he was, you never wanted to get out of that and if you watch any commercial, um, most brands that he had partnerships with you know was genuine to who he was as a person, what he actually believed in and every commercial that we did, you know it normally s- told some type of story, his story or there was a message his message and it was always true to him, whether it was Samsung, whether it was Nike, whether it was you know Sprite right. you know you've never seen him do something and even today i can't get lebron off his couch for money money doesn't move him today you know and, and people when you say that people be like really because you gotta think people say oh you have lebron I, you know how you gonna have time to get a deal for me i'm like wait a minute i can't get lebron's not moving today time with his family Is much more important than being, because one thing you don't understand, when you have partnerships, they don't want days in your season. They can't get them. They want days in your summer. So the more partnerships you have, the less days in your summer that you have. And people don't understand that.
1: So, when LeBron does move, people notice, and you and I were talking before we came on. Anytime he goes anywhere, people notice he's at the Duke Virginia game, you're at the Duke Virginia game, and all of a sudden it becomes about we're recruiting Zion, we're there for Zion. What's the real story about what happens next in, in terms of pros and college? And I think that's good for TV, but the reality is
3: we just love the game. You know, no one talked about when we flew from Cleveland to Detroit and Steph Curry was playing at Davidson, nobody cared. Why? I wasn't an agent, I wasn't in the position I'm in. Obviously, he wasn't playing in LA. Um, You know, we're there to see a game. The University of uh, Virginia, uh, its president and and Tony Bennett took care of us. Uh, Just seeing a basketball game. It, It wasn't about anybody recruiting anybody, but what happens is, People put this in the atmosphere, and they just run with it without even making a phone call. It's like, hey, wait a minute. We're not, that's not true.
2: So that was Super Agent Rich Paul, founder and CEO at Clutch Sports Group. And Jason, what was really fascinating, like he talked with us, but he was checking out his phone. I mean, this guy was moving and shaking.
1: There was news breaking during <laughs> our entire interview. And let me tell you, he was off like a rocket uh, mm-hmm. out of there, hopped in the car, on to the next thing. It was a big weekend for him. Yes. But everywhere you look, there he is. So
2: from NBA player to team owner and more, Grant Hill definitely has uh, worn a lot of hats when it comes to basketball. He's an NBA Hall of Famer, NBA All-Star. He's now vice chair and co-owner of the Atlanta Hawks. And he really does think about the fan experience.
1: Here's what he had to say. We recently
0: went through uh, an arena renovation. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that we noticed is that uh, you know, with technology uh, you know, millennials are obviously very much engaged, very much, a, you know, digital currency is, is, is their thing. And so, uh, whereas before maybe you'd go on uh, your mobile device and check your emails during a game or maybe check the scores, uh, now you're so much into uploading your experience up, you know, that's what millennials, that's what, I'm not a millennial, I do that sometimes too. (laughs) We Um, all do. We all do. But I mean, that's how we live now. And that's how technology has disrupted our industry in sports. So increasing the bandwidth in our arena to accommodate that. So it can be a pleasurable experience. That's just sort of one of many examples I think that we've tried to sort of introduce uh, in terms of providing and, ta- and, and and speaking to and, uh, and, and creating a, a wonderful in-game experience. The end of the day, we're all trying to get people off their phones, out of their homes, and into our building. And so what can we do to attract those type of uh, those type of customers and so I know, think it's funny
2: that, Mark Cuban was just talking about it on a panel and he said you don't, when you're at a game too though you don't want people looking down right you want them engaged in the game so it's like this balance
0: right it is a balance because one you wanna so if you go to a game I think you can see this at any NBA arena and I also moonlight do some television and broadcast games and so when the game is not going on and there's a timeout or a stoppage of play there's music there's skits on the court there's so it's constantly being stimulated constantly keeping you engaged which is important but we also recognize that not just sharing with those that are there with you. You want to share with your entire network. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be on Instagram. You're going to be on Snapchat. You're going to be, uh, you know, to all your friends, whether that's 20 or 20,000. And that's part of how we live. And so we have to adapt and adjust and accommodate. And that's what we try to do.
1: So another group that has certainly embraced technology are NBA players. I mean, you have these mega brands, maybe bigger than in any other sport. It feels like the NBA and a lot of the owners ha- have enabled that, you know, maybe with a little bit of a gimlet eye toward, we don't know how this is gonna go. How do you guys think about players, social media, and these brands that they're building using tech?
0: Well, I mean, I think we're, as a league, I think it starts with Adam Silver. I mean, we, you know, we Technology Summit, this has been his baby for 20 years, and, uh, and it's grown and it's evolved. Um, but I think, first of all, just the league in itself and how the, the, the league markets its players, uh, you see our faces. You know, the, it's more about the individual necessarily than the team. Mm. And, and so LeBron James or, or Chris Paul or James Harden, as a fan, you feel like you know them. You feel like, you know, Michael Jordan long before the technology boom. And, I mean, he was well known and recognized all over the world. And so this only magnifies that. And the league has really embraced technology and used it to spread and, and its, its, its message, but also grow its business. And so, yeah, to have players now understand uh, that they can speak directly to an audience, to their fans, uh, I also think it, it, it encourages them and, and sort of contributes to their desire to speak out on things and right. social injustices, and we've seen that uh, in our league. And
2: well, what's uh, the balance there? Because you know we talk about that a lot in terms of you guys have an amazing platform through your players, through your owners, you know, through your viewers, and I just wonder when you think about social activism and all of the things that are going on, whether it's politically or just within our world at large, what's your responsibility as an owner?
0: Well, I mean, as an owner, you want to be informed. And, and uh, obviously, you you want to uh, be authentic. And you want to, you know, look, I, I work with Tony Ressler, who's our managing partner. And there have yeah. been things that have happened, uh, you know, in, in society during the course of our ownership. And one of the things that we discussed look, you know, it's okay. Like, you know, speak from the heart. But just, you know, obviously you want to make sure you're informed and educated. And that goes for the players as well. The great thing, though, about technology, uh, unlike 25, 30 years ago, now you have access to information. So when I played in Detroit, if something happened in Cleveland, I might not know about it. I might not be aware. Yeah. But now instantaneously you you can find out and you have uh, the ability to, to really learn and, and, and form an opinion and a thought. And so whether you're a player or an owner, uh, you just want to be responsible. Uh, you want and, and I I've done that. I'm on social media, I've I've spoken out, I've you know, you, you can go on my page and right. know how I yeah. feel about everything. Yeah. Yeah. And um uh, and so, but, but it is a balance because we also understand that we have customers who don't necessarily agree with that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, um, you know, you, you want to be cognizant of that. You want to be aware of that. Uh, but through it all, I do think sports is beautiful in that you can have different sides of the aisle who may not agree on anything in life, but they're going to come to an Atlanta Hawks game and support and, 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 and cheer uh, and, and, and be totally vested in that team. And when you win and you go through a championship experience, uh, it's magical. It can bring people together. So I do think sports can play a role yeah. right, in, in healing in,
1: in a lot of ways. Single biggest thing that's changed for players today since you were a player.
0: Wow. So I think one of the big things, and it, as it applies to me, is there's such an emphasis now on rest, on recovery, uh-huh. on... Um, and that's not the biggest thing but you know obviously I had a lot of injuries throughout my career and do you was... feel
2: like if you had had more rest back then that you wouldn't have had so many injuries
0: Yeah I, you know there was a there was a school of thought back in the day that you know you play through anything Yeah you know? and and you know what you're hurt just tape it up and go Yeah and 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 now I think as an organization as owners uh, as a basketball operations department you know you think big picture and and you'd rather um, rest. You know, take a week off. Uh, I know a lot of the old heads like me resent that, but I think it's really a good thing. And, and because there's always this pressure to play, and players put that on themselves, and sometimes we need controls in place to protect the player from themselves. And so I wish I had that. I wish. Right. That I, had, I was in that environment that maybe I could have avoided a lot of the injuries I went through.
1: So Grant Hill, truly in the middle of one of the more interesting franchises. I say that as a former Atlantan. Uh, the Hawks have a lot of road ahead of them. They yes. need to improve as a basketball team. But Grant Hill is one of those guys who clearly, he himself looking around the corner on behalf of that team, but also giving some advice to his players as a former player.
2: So, Jason, the 20th annual NBA All-Star Technology Summit bringing together players, owners, and they were talking about sports, media, and technology. Amy Brooks is in the center of it all. She's the president of team marketing and business operations, and she's the chief innovation officer at the NBA. She also played basketball at Stanford. She was with us uh, and talked about the league embracing social media and the importance of technology in the game. Here she is.
4: It's exciting for us because only 1% of our fans globally will ever come to a game. So we have to 100%. embrace technology. One percent. As such a global sport, our games are here. And so we have to embrace technology. We're very fortunate because our players embrace social media and they are great global brands amongst themselves. And so we do everything we can to, to capture the emotion around the game and, and, and send it out globally.
1: I want to ask you about that specifically because The NBA has done a phenomenal job with developing those brands and kind of giving the players, it feels like, a little bit of space. How do you balance that? Because you've got some big personalities, and as you say, with a massive social media footprint in a lot of cases.
4: Absolutely. I I mean, we see our games on TV as meals and social media and all of the content as snacks. So our players are out there developing content. Our teams are developing content, and we, the league, are developing content. So we have 1.5 billion followers amongst players teams in the league and our job is just to engage fans globally in every way we can, and different platforms and testing and learning is a big part of that.
2: Amy, talk to us about the platforms, right, because you have traditional where you go to a game, you've got men's, you've got women's, you've got esports, you've got streaming. Like, Where's the biggest growth potential?
4: What's fun, We think the engaging side of the broadcast has a lot of potential, and our other leagues beside the NBA allow us to test. We have our NBA 2K League, which is yeah. broadcast on Twitch, our G League is broadcast on Twitch. I'll give you a quick example of what we're doing with the G League. We're Actually, allowing people to vote for the MVP in a G League game and then at the end of the game that MVP can come on and take come on and take direct questions oh, from fans great. so it allows us to test and learn a lot but is that
2: where the, where's the most growth Because like we talk about esports a lot and I think they talk about it being like a billion dollar business by 2020 where's the biggest growth
4: well we see esports as a great way again going back to the global opportunity to engage our fans we see the potential of having an esports team internationally and that's much harder to do with the the NBA so we see that as a fantastic opportunity talk
1: about that as an opportunity what are the challenges it's obviously a massive market everybody has a China strategy Help distill the NBA's yeah
4: we have 300 million people play basketball there we had 640 million people watch the NBA there we have these phenomenal partners it's when I was just amazed at just the avidity of People loving basketball. It's the number one team sport there. The challenge, of course, is how far away it is, but we're really focused on how we capture that market in unique and different ways, and they're so forward-looking, so tech-savvy, and so they just love consuming NBA however they can. You
2: know, it was interesting kind of prepping for this. Like, you've got a lot of owners who come out, and I think we're living in such a political, social activist world. How do you balance letting players and owners of teams express their opinion, or help kind of balance those situations with also kind of
4: managing a huge industry and a league? Yeah, it's, it's important to give players and owners, but especially our players, a platform by which they can use their voice and speak out at whatever cause is important to them. We want to make sure we feel, they feel supported. Um, obviously, diversity is, is a core value of the NBA, and we're, we're, we really want to embrace our players and, and enable them to freely speak. Talk about
1: the WNBA and sort of the opportunities there, how it fits in, where you see the most
4: growth. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's important to me, especially as a woman that worked for a league that embraces not just diversity of our players in the NBA, but we have our own women's professional league. And we see tremendous potential for this. It's, it's a league that's been around for over 20 years. But we think that in today's society, it's really prime for capturing a new audience as well for people who care about progressive women and what women are doing, not just on the court, but off the court what are the other different
2: methods that you guys are embracing in terms of getting the brands out there and I think about was it a couple of years started doing kind of sponsor logos yes.
4: uh, on um, uniforms and so like where does this all go yeah so we, we call it the Jersey patch and yes. we launched this for the first time last season we now have 29 teams that have a partner on their jersey and we've been tremendously pleased with this program because we didn't know who was gonna come how this is gonna work and we now have two-thirds of these partners are brand new to the NBA we have some fantastic Fantastic brands like Disney, GE, Harley-Davidson, and also endemic brands to that team and that city. Most of these companies are based locally in those markets, but they're global brands.
1: So Amy Brooks, so impressive in part because of the portfolio that she has, right. Carol, globally minded, but also across all the platforms where the NBA is playing.
2: Right. Men, men, women, though, because if you think about the NBA, it's not just about, you know, the huge franchise teams that we talk about so much, but they have really spread out into esports, online streaming and so much more.
1: And the G League. And they play right in my backyard. So David Blitzer, well known in investment circles, but maybe lesser known in the sports world. He's one of the co-owner of the Philadelphia 76ers and a couple other teams, including the Devils and Crystal Palace soccer team over in Europe. Josh Harris over at Apollo, another private equity guy, probably a little bit better known. Known. We caught up with Blitz, as he's known to almost everyone, <laughs> about the Sixers, but also about what's going on at Blackstone.
5: Well, first again, thanks uh, for having me on. It's incredible to be here. Um, the Tech Summit and the overall All Star Weekend is is always so much fun. Um, and if you think about the Tech Summit in terms of you know the convergence of what's happening between what's happening with the players on the court, what's happening with them off of the court, and their engagement with their global fan base has absolutely just completely exploded in the age of social media. Um, And there's been a lot of interesting commentary even uh, at at some of the um, uh, sessions about how much that has changed and how quickly, et cetera, but I'll just say from my perspective in in, in watching this connection, um, I would say over the past, I mean, each year grows so dramatically, Uh, there's no doubt. And we have some uh, very colorful uh, players that um, really really seem to dominate uh, social media as well as on the court. Um, so it's fun to sort of watch that engagement, but it's you know it's just going strength to strength. And if you look at the, you know the global nature of the game, mm-hmm. how that couples with the incredible performance and athleticism with what's on the court, um, and frankly it's giving folks at home and around the
1: world what they want. It does feel like the league And the owners, for the most part, have not just sort of allowed this to happen, but enabled it to happen. Absolutely. How and why? Well, look, I think
5: Adam Silver and the entire management team at the NBA is incredible. Okay, And I think um, they saw this, and they saw it early. And they saw that the connection that could be made between the league and the players with the fan base, given what was going on from a distribution standpoint, in terms of how people are, were consuming media, are consuming media, and where, more importantly, where the trend was going, uh, I think they they nailed it, uh, and they continue yeah, to.
2: It's fascinating, because this summit's been going on for 20 years, right, a tech summit 20 yep. years ago. Who would have thought that this is where we'd be, kind of be today, and Adam was on it.
5: Absolutely. I mean, it was funny. I was just talking to one of our partners, Michael Rubin. Um, who was trying to remember. I think he's he's been on a panel at every summit. He was trying to figure out whether it was 19 years or yeah. 20 years. Right. Um, again, just ahead of the curve.
2: How does technology change the business opportunities of owning an NBA team?
5: I mean, it's changing in so many different ways. You know, I mean, we talked a lot about the social media dynamics and the players connection uh, with the fan base. And just if you think about some of the content, so I don't know, but it wasn't that long ago where Joel Embiid was literally walking down the street, okay? And somebody was like talking trash to him on a on a Playground court. So Joel just walks over there, just dunks on the kid, <laughs> and it just goes completely viral, yeah. right? Literally, globally. Yeah. Um, and that wasn't set up. Like, A, that's Joel, and B, that's, that's the dynamic that's out there right now with, with uh, what the players, etc. can do. So that's kind of one area. You obviously, from a, a new arena, and what's going on inside um, is incredible from a technology standpoint. If you go out and see the Sacramento Kings, New arena, and mm-hmm. I cannot wait to see the Golden State Warriors' new arena, uh, the technology and the systems that are going in, and the engagement that they will have again with the fan base is uh, is incredible. So, I mean, we're seeing technology change just about everything that we do. I'm talking much more broadly, right? And then we kind of bring it into you know the sports scene, and particularly here in the NBA, it's great.
2: Well, and it's also opened up the rest of the world. Exactly.
5: Right? Well, I think, the so NBA is the most, big... I think the NBA is the most global game, Yeah, and again, it continues to go from strength to strength, and, and we had the opportunity uh, and the pleasure of playing two preseason games in China this year. And I have to tell you that, that it's amazing. I mean, A, just the excitement that that was driving in China. Um, I mean, walking out of our hotel and the people that were around and in the arenas yeah. and just the numbers, because the sheer numbers are so massive, but to think about the ability to connect with that fan in northern China from the court in Philadelphia or Boston or pick your, you know, pick your arena, you know, it's
1: amazing. Yeah. So the players have gotten big. Uh, in every way. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes it feels like maybe bigger than their teams. It feels like the only analog out there, and this is one you're familiar with because your group also owns a soccer team, Crystal yes. Palace. Uh, do players get too big ultimately for their teams? How much do you worry about that? in this day and age?
5: I really I really don't. Um, the reality is is absolutely the players are building their personal brands. And, and, and I think what the players are able to do, partly it's about building their brands and being able to engage with that fan base. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it is, in my opinion, being able to talk to the world about things that are really important to them. And it goes well beyond the sport, okay? So, you know, things of a charitable nature and things that relate to you know, causes that they're incredibly focused on, and the ability for the fans, um, and forget just basketball fans. I just mean, you know, to engage and understand. Like, Magic Johnson was talking a little bit about what it's like today as a player versus when he was growing up. And I was a huge Magic Johnson fan. I tried to learn everything I could about Magic Johnson, and the amount of information that I had in the 80s on Magic Johnson versus the amount of information I have today on LeBron James, Is is radically different, right? And so people's ability to really understand the player and what's important to them off the court as much as on the court, I think, is really amazing. All right, we Uh, got to
2: we got to talk markets. We got to talk
5: a little
1: Blackstone, (laughs) Blackstone, (laughs) little markets. It is your day job, uh, after all. Day and night job. Steve Schwartzman and John Gray. You know, they do they they do pay you to do this. what do you look at from a market perspective? What do you see out there? And I'm especially interested in what you see in Europe because you worked there for a while. Yeah, Let's talk about Brexit just for a second. Sure. Are you a buyer in uh, in the UK and Europe right now?
5: Um, well, look, A, we have significant investments in, in the UK and we're very comfortable with the businesses that we're, we're invested in the UK. I don't think any of us know what's going to happen. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know, pull up some odds. and. <laughs> Uh, everybody's but there are got a slightly different view, there, right? To present yeah, an opportunity. Not quite yet. Not <laughs> I, I actually think that that things will work themselves through. Yeah. I do, and I think the UK is very resilient. It's a great market uh, economy, etc. But it's bumpy, okay? And there are going to be times where I think, from a, just a valuation standpoint, um, where you might be wanting to jump in in different asset classes or industries relative to uh, them having traded down. Uh, quite dramatically. I don't feel like that's necessarily the case right now. Things okay. are down a bit, um, but not dramatically. And um, so we're, we're looking closely.
2: You are looking closely. What Absolutely. About, where are we in the United States? I think we're all trying to we're figure great, out.
5: Well, I think economically, from a macro perspective, I think we're in a very good place. I think the reality is we continue to see strong growth. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, we can all debate exactly on interest rates, but things feel you know, quite, uh, quite calm right now in terms of that cost of capital um, and policy from that standpoint. And we see earnings growth across all of our companies. They're doing very well. One of the things that we spend a lot of time thinking about um, really are, A, looking around corners. Like, what aren't we seeing, right, that can, that can come up? We spend a lot of time thinking about inflation um, and wage growth and, you know, the ability to have pricing power. In a variety of different businesses and a variety inflation. of different industries. David,
2: inflation becoming more of a problem? Correct.
5: Yeah. Correct. Do you guys, yeah, go ahead. If you think about uh, the fourth quarter of last year as rates were starting to move up and what the effects that might have as it relates to inflation that effect on a variety of industries broadly and then obviously specific companies is is something we spend a lot of time thinking
1: about. So running tech ops, the world is kind of your oyster. I mean, this is like the coolest job in investing in many people's minds, because you have all, you have this huge arsenal that, that you can put to work, more patient capital. Give us an idea of where some semblance of a majority of that capital is going at this point. What sorts of opportunities are out there because you can be, as the name says,
5: Tactical. And right. are there a lot right now? <laughs> there are. It's not, I mean look, the investment environment, we, we could go, we don't have enough time to go through all of yeah. the different yeah. areas. You know, we have a, a, an amazing business in the sense that we really can play across everything, industry-wise, capital structure-wise, okay. geography-wise, uh, within our business, um, and then obviously, there are different points in time where different subsectors, et cetera, uh, are super attractive to us. And that could be for value, just purely valuation reasons, and it could also be for where we think those industries are going. So as an example, we spend a ton of time uh, in the telecom space. And mm. so spectrum and towers and data centers mm-hmm. and fiber, and none of that is like dramatic, right? We all know what's happening in terms of data of explosion and how people are utilizing and, you know, their devices in, in everyday life. Uh, So we all know that the growth is there, but the ability for us to find different investments within that space across the globe has been uh, a ton of fun. But I'd say the biggest thing that we're doing right now is is probably structured equity. So we're going in equity situations where we're helping companies grow, and that can be organically, it can be an M&A strategy, it can be a variety of things, but they need our capital and our partnership to achieve their goals But we're generally going in above the common equity and below some, you know, level of of debt capital. We're kind of that middle of capital layer. And we think that's a terrific place to be.
2: So, Jason, as you reminded me, David Blitzer isn't someone who talks to the press and media often.
1: No, it was great to catch up with him. And he has such a wide ranging job at Blackstone, Mm -hmm. but also a wide ranging view of the world of sports, given everything that they own. Very thoughtful. Really enjoyed catching up with him. New So Carol, we wanted to make sure to give people a sneak peek of what I think. And I think you agree is really one of the most powerful stories in Bloomberg Business Week. It's in the magazine and it concerns New Orleans. Post-Katrina housing in New Orleans has been one of the most bedeviling aspects of that reconstruction. Rob Walker, Fantastic writer uh, for us and many others. You may know him from his books, his work in The New York Times. He put together this piece. He joins us from New Orleans. Rob, great to be with you.
6: Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you.
1: So tell us about what has happened, because the headline here is really about Brad Pitt and some promises that he made, some homes that he built. It hasn't gone the way that many people hoped.
6: Yeah, well, so he started an organization called, or a foundation called Make It Right that uh, had this very ambitious goal about building 150 houses for folks in the Lower Ninth Ward, uh, which was one of the most devastated areas of the city after Katrina. Um, And not just houses, but like really architecturally adventurous houses. Like he really, he was able to bring to bear all the sort of power of celebrity uh, to get like great architects to contribute designs and, high high eco standards and you know it got a huge amount of attention i'm sure most people listening to this like or else are also thinking like oh yeah i heard about that yeah but then well then what happened well five six seven years later time went on some problems have emerged with the houses um and some of them have turned out to be kind of severe and meanwhile make it right as an organization has kind of evaporated and um so it's become kind of uh like uh an, an, a bit of an ugly after effect to, I think, what everyone agrees was an incredibly well-intentioned and brave project.
2: And to be fair, Rob, right, there are homes that were built, and they built almost all that they promised, and there are homes yeah. that have not had problems?
6: There are definitely homes that don't seem to have had problems. I talked to a bunch of residents, some of whom have done a lot of <laughs> research, Um and yeah, I mean, there have been a substantial number of homes have had problems, and I think that that's what has gotten people uh, upset, but because Make It Right itself as an organization is no longer in the conversation, there's sort of no one there to say like, well, but there are a few dozen other homes that seem fine. I managed to find some residents who were able to speak to that side of it, but um But, you know, some of the problems are real. There are vacant houses. And you're talking about, you know, here we are X number of years after Katrina. There's still a real crisis of affordable housing in New Orleans. It's a shame that there are vacant and apparently irreparable houses in that, um, you know, development.
1: Well, and I have to think that it's especially it's sort of exacerbated to some extent, In the lower nine, as they call it, because that's an area that all of us who were paying attention at that time and people who are even paying passing attention know the stories from there It was a neighborhood that was largely left behind in all aspects and, and even the name of Brad Pitt's organization essentially kind of nodded uh, toward that. Uh, what's, what's it like on the ground uh, in the neighborhood? You're, you're more familiar with New Orleans and, and its nuances than almost anyone.
6: Yeah, <laughs> well, maybe not than almost anyone, but I do actually live uh, basically in the Lower Ninth Ward, right. not in that part of it, but uh, nearby. And, uh, you know, there's no question that um, th- the Lower Ninth Ward is still... You know, I think the population is a quarter of what it was before Katrina, which 10, 15 years out is sort of scandalous and shocking. That said, in terms of a single project that built a high number of houses, there's nothing else like make it right, Um, which is why, you know, which is why the stakes are so high for them, because they really did have this noble goal and put a lot of firepower behind it. But this is the thing about these social design projects is a lot of times there's a big emphasis on the front end when it's flashy and it's exciting and we're having big galas and we're on the Ellen DeGeneres show. But then 10 years later, you know, the organization has dwindled to a few people. They don't answer the phone anymore. And it becomes kind of sad. And the the real measure of success of a project like this is what it's not about the flashy beginning. It's about how it's maintained in the long run.
2: Well, contrast it to another nonprofit that's there. um, And tell us how that's going in comparison.
6: Well, so you're thinking of um, Home by Hand, which is a descendant of a, uh, there was around the same time that Make It Right was uh, founded. um, Len Riggio, right? Yeah. Yeah, Leonard Riggio of Barnes and Noble fame wanted to do something. He did a thing called uh, 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 Home Again, I believe it was called. That they just built about 101 houses, I guess, or it was 100 houses, and then they built one extra one just landyap, as we say. <laughs> um, but then they had, the, and and uh, but then they that sort of morphed into a new organization called Home by Hand, which is some of the same people, and they're still building affordable housing. They're not giving them away, but they're you know, working with uh, working with qualified buyers who are you know lower income, but helping them with financing and stuff like this. And it's not a flashy organization, but it's a very solid organization. Mm-hmm. And I just threw them into the story as a little bit of a point of contrast, not not to set up one against the other. and and I, I want to be clear that the home by hand people are fans of Make it Right. Mm-hmm. and there's no bad blood or anything like that. but it's just a different model that sort of shows how these kinds of projects can, Um, have maybe not a flashy beginning, but maybe still make a big long-term impact.
2: That's reporter Rob Walker. So, Jason, we all know about the Murdoch media empire, built up as a result of a lot of buying uh, over several decades. It's now in a new era uh, as a result of much of the company being sold, which begs a huge multi-billion dollar question.
1: What are they going to do with all that money? (laughs) And also, what's the lasting impact of this empire either together or apart? Felix Gillette, with us, this, you know, for those of us in the media, especially, for those of us who've been watching yeah. this saga for for so long, this is a big, big
7: question that has a lot of ramifications. It does. Um, you know, yeah, the the forever the question was, what, who's going to take over Cooper yeah. Murdoch's empire? And I have to say, looking at this, it's kind of this great bit of estate planning where he said, you know, rather than give the keys to the empire to one of my children, I'm going to sell most of it to Disney, and I'm going to position them to build their own empires and once this deal uh with disney uh closes and it's getting pretty close they're going to have a huge amount of money to play with how much Um, about 12 billion dollars in disney shares and cash yeah will be coming out to the family um and so they're going to be pretty well positioned
2: and there's what to start buying stuff. three siblings
7: there's three siblings from his second marriage right Uh, James and Lachlan and Elizabeth. And that's pretty much who people are keeping an eye on. Um, And it's kind of fascinating. I think from the start, he positioned Lachlan to take over what's left of – 21st Century Fox, which will now be called Fox Corporation. Um, And that's still, it's about a third of the size of the previous company. Um, But it'll probably grow. I mean, Lachlan has said, you know, we're going to be out there, we're going to be buying stuff, we're going to be making acquisitions. Um, The question is, what is his taste yeah um, and you know the new version of the company uh, they kind of basically got rid of they got rid of the movie studio all the TV networks um, that you know made uh, you know on-demand entertainment program and the really kind of focused on live programming. So they kept uh, the Fox News channel and they've been acquiring sports rights, right. NFL Thursday Night Football, WWE Smackdown. Um, and I think that's kind of the position they're going in. What's interesting is when you talk to analysts who look at the company, they they will point out, well, you know, they haven't been doubling down on assets like, you know, there's a lot of TV station groups out there that you could buy. Um, you know, they kind of expect Lachlan to kind of steer things in his own direction. Well, and to the point about TV stations, mm-hmm. back in the day, that it would have just
1: been assumed that right. they were going to buy those, right? right? They, yep. they would have been the absolute natural buyer. There.
7: Yeah. And instead, you have, you know, Lachlan, they put, they, Paid a, uh, invested $100 million in caffeine, which is this kind of Twitch-like uh, live streaming service, uh, popular with uh, e-game, e-gamers and video game fans. Uh, Lachlan took a seat on the board of caffeine. So, you know, you might look in that space for, uh, you know, what might be of interest to him. And James goes with the sale, right? Yeah, no, initially. Oh, no. Yeah, so there was a lot of speculation right. he was yeah. going to go to Disney, and now everyone's saying, no, he's not going to go to Disney, he's gonna going to go out on his own right and right. He's, but he's on start. the
2: board isn't he
7: uh maybe he yeah it's sort of well they have, they're going to be the largest shareholder in yeah. disney when this closes so right. uh you know they will have a lot of leverage in terms of getting a seat on the board for the family and also you know influencing what happens in terms of the leadership of Disney down the line. Um, but That's for, assuming that Bob Iger doesn't actually live forever and, <laughs> he might, and he might just ultimately relinquishes he might his role. Yeah. He's looking like it. Yeah. 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 But James is going to go out. You know, He's been looking at, uh, I think, real estate in lower Manhattan. He's going to set up his own investment company. Uh, maybe a little incubator. And the question is, well, what is he going to be interested in? And, you know, people are kind of like, well, look in that live streaming TV space, Um, but he's also really into environmental um, causes, so maybe investments there. He had a lot of success in... Um, in Asia, uh, in India in particular, building up Star, and he has a lot of relationships there. So potentially, um, people are thinking, eh, maybe he could uh, make some investments there. Um, but he's also, you know, he's been sitting on the Tesla board. Um, and people are thinking, you know, if any of the siblings, James seems the most likely, you know, he's in his mid to late 40s at this point, he has a lot of runway in front of him, he's going to have a lot of money, he might be making some big moonshot type investments that I think could be very surprising to people.
2: What about Elizabeth?
7: She, you know, after she sold her production company to her father's company back in 2011, uh, the Shine Group, she set up her own investment uh, vehicle and she's been making, uh, you know, investments in uh, kind of the production, artistic, creative side of the media industry, uh, animation. Uh, She has this company in Los Angeles called Vertical Networks, which uh, makes – Uh, Short-form video for you know Snapchat and Facebook uh, and YouTube. So I think people expect her to do that only maybe on a bigger scale.
2: What's happened to Rupert? Can I just, Is he?
7: Well, the greatest thing about all of this is now, you know, the things that uh, he held on to are those things he kind of loves most, which is like, A, he's going to have a lot of influence with Disney coming out of the deal. And B, he still has all the newspapers yeah. and he still has Fox News. Yeah. So in terms of being involved in, you know, the political news cycle, um, he's still going to have a ton of influence uh, in London. He's going to have a ton of influence in the United States. And you know the children can't begrudge that because he's kind of cashed them out and said, "Do what you want." Well, I'm glad you mentioned the political piece because,
1: yeah. as you look back over the last 20, 30 years, the Murdoch-run empire has arguably been the most influential political voice right. outside of, and maybe. In the, it may, it may be even more important than anything that actually happens yeah. in politics and policy. What happens with the next generation? You
7: know, I think. Uh, you know, I think James was probably a little bit uncomfortable with some of the Fox News political uh, influence. Uh, you know his his wife is. Big into environmental causes, and occasionally she would hop on Twitter and kind of write things that everyone in the media and oh, I can't believe you know, <laughs> right. she's subtweeting her father and all with that. Right. And so that was a little bit uh, there was a little bit of tension there. And I think that's another benefit of this setup for the children is that um, you know James will step away from that. That will no longer be, that'll be Lachlan world. That'll be Lachlan. You know, and I think he's more comfortable with it. And you know, Fox News makes a ton of money. And has more influence than it's ever had with the current administration. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, they'll continue to do that. And I think James can go off and, um, you know, pursue his own political interests, which I think, again – much more in line with, you know, environmental causes. Well, and as we joked about before you came on air, it really is, it's Succession. The HBO show <laughs> Succession, so
1: they need to give us some fodder for next season. Hey, they Robert do.
2: was watching and saying, all right, wait oh, a minute, how goodness. can I do this better? That's a
1: great show. <laughs> there you go. Felix Gillette, always great to catch up with you. Thanks.
2: So Jason, we caught up with Vivek Ranadive, and this is an interesting guy, right? Part of the ownership group of Sacramento Kings. He also at one point owned uh, the Warriors, but he's a big technology guy. He started companies. Fascinating to sit down with him.
1: Forward thinking indeed. Mm-hmm. Here's what he had to say.
8: Well, I just came from the uh, tech summit panel where I was part of the uh, uh, sports betting panel uh, and we all believe that that's going to be a huge opportunity uh, for sports teams and for the NBA in particular. Uh, we're uh, blessed to have uh, leaders uh, like uh, Adam Silver and David Stern before that who've always been on the cutting edge and we see Uh, sports betting as opening up a whole new avenue of entertainment, engagement, and opportunity for our fans.
1: So let me ask you about that, because we hear constantly from owners, and it feels genuine, how much they like the leadership of this league. Yeah. I'm not sure that that is true in every sport. What is it about the leadership of this particular league that works well for an owner like you?
8: Well, first of all, uh, they've always been on the right side of history. So if you look at all of the issues that we faced, uh, David Stern and now Adam Silver, uh, they've not been afraid to step out uh, and be on the right side. Even being in this uh, city, uh, we pulled the plug on that a few years ago uh, when we felt that the laws were vindictive uh, towards certain segments of society. Uh, And so... Uh, Our leaders have not been afraid to step out and do what's right. Uh, Now there's also been a recognition that it's all about the players. Uh, And in our league, uh, we are inclusive, uh, and we talk, uh, and we welcome ideas, and we're open. Uh, And then we're also the most technology-savvy league in sports. Uh, And then add to that a global outlook. Uh, So we are the league of the future. I think, when I think of some of the other sports, they're legacy sports to me.
2: Vivek, you're not afraid to step out either. And there's a, a widely watched and circulated video uh, online of you on the court when there was unrest, protests in Sacramento. You've been so instrumental in terms of reviving that area. What is the role of owners in this environment where, you know, political issues, social issues, you have people strongly on both sides or either side of an issue?
8: Well, there's only 30 NBA teams. Uh, So to be an owner of an NBA team is a privilege, it's an honor, but it also comes with responsibility. Uh, And so to me, uh, using that as a platform uh, to uh, make a difference, to have an impact, uh, is really an obligation and a responsibility. When I bought the team, uh, the first thing I did is I laid out a mission statement for the team, which is what we do in Silicon Valley. And the mission statement for the Kings was, uh, to build a winning franchise, it starts with winning, right. uh, that enhances the lives of those it touches and makes the world a better place. I make everyone repeat this mission, whether you're a coach, you're a player, you're in the business office, everyone has to embrace this mission uh, that we want to win, but we also uh, want to do good in the world. And when you think
1: about players, this is a constant theme too, and you alluded to it. It is all about the players uh, today. They have amazing platforms on social mm-hmm. media. They are emboldened by owners like you and the league, as you mentioned, to speak out on, on all sorts of things. How do you strike that balance between being a cohesive team and allowing these careers and these brands to blossom?
8: And you have
2: to be profitable.
8: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and make
8: money. <laughs> it's it. So, so it's, it's a little bit <laughs> like conducting a jazz band. So the old model was a Sousa marching band where everybody just marched to the beat of a single drummer uh, in a robotic fashion. Uh, And I think uh, what we have in the NBA is a jazz band. And so you're the conductor and you have different players and you have to make each of them feel like they can uh, do their thing. And at the end of the day, you have to make sure it all comes together as music. So think of the NBA as a jazz band.
1: But also be pretty savvy operators. It feels like we have seen this transition, especially in the NBA. You think about the the buyers and, and owners of late very successful investors, uh, many of them successful entrepreneurs, uh, like yourself, they want to make money. So, what's the opportunity? What are the challenges there of still, you know, yeah. maintaining a commercial enterprise?
8: Well, I think first of all that this is still an undervalued asset. Uh, the first team I bought into was with Joe Lacob and the Warriors, and we paid 450 million for that, and people thought that was crazy. And then for the Kings, I paid 540 million which at the time was unprecedented. And I was on record as saying that I thought it was a steal.
1: So that was Vivek Ranadive. So fascinating that he got in on a relative basis pretty early into this boom in ownership that we've seen of entrepreneurs, investors, coming in to own teams.
2: And Jason, of course, they had some news that they announced at the NBA All-Star Tech Summit about a predictive gaming lounge that they're going to have at their arena.
1: You got to think that that's one thing that a lot of teams are going to be interested in, especially as we see this continual renovation of the stadiums around the country.
2: We're going to talk to Ted Leonsis. He's chairman and CEO at Monumental Sports and Entertainment. This guy wears so many hats.
1: Absolutely. And he talked to us not only about owning a basketball team, but being an early investor in a lot of big companies including one of our favorites, Fortnite. Right. He owns the Wizards, he owns the Capitals, and the Capital One Arena. We asked him about the explosion of eSports and so much more. It feels like the NBA is around the corner from other leagues, candidly. You know other sports yeah, as it well.
9: started when I was at America Online, we did the first deal with, uh, I used to call David Stern, Commissioner Stern, uh, commissioner.com. <laughs> and, and he really saw it. He started this um this tech conference. Uh, This tech conference is one of the most important uh, industry events. I mean, it's everyone who's in technology wants to come, and in media, because um, our game, our sport, is the most valuable content, the most valuable data in the whole media landscape. And it's um, very, very relevant to Older people, like I call this modern nostalgia. I mean, I walked by and I saw Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and it's like, Kareem. <laughs> I mean, I grew up with Kareem, and, and it's very, very relevant to millennials. It's fast-paced. It's real-time. It's lots of data. It's very relevant to the next generation, the Gen Z, who will never get cable, who want to interact with um Entertainment and stars and we're leaders in esports. Um, I've been make personally uh, been making huge investments in esports. I own Team Liquid with Peter Gruber, owns the Golden State Warriors. How big is America. that
2: market gonna be? We see numbers of about a billion in twenty twenty. How how big do you It is think going that?
9: to superset um all of the leagues in terms of engagement because it started globally. It didn't start in North America or Canada. It's uh it's something that started globally and it's free to get started. I, I made an investment in Epic and and Fortnite and it's the ultimate it's the perfect communal game, right? And and it's kids getting together and playing a game to survive on on the island and they're talking with their friends and it's become a platform.
1: Did that become bigger than you thought it was? I mean, that has become a juggernaut. Did you anticipate it be this big, Fortnite? Yeah. <laughs>
2: Touche, it But what is it
1: about Fortnite? Because I mean, it really has, I think it caught a lot of people off guard, not you apparently, but it really came out of nowhere to a lot of people.
9: Well, the, the management team, the leadership team of Epic is... Um, Just down the road here, right? Yeah, a long yeah. time in that industry, and their founder, CEO, really has a good touch with the publishers and the studios and understanding what's going on. But what he was able to do was to make an exchange. I will give you for free a real communal piece of software that will activate friendships, activate... Uh, viewing. I think it's the first um, first um, multi-user game that was designed that would be easy to follow. Most of we, we play in League of Legends, there's overwatch leagues. Yeah. So if you haven't played the game, you're new to it, you just yeah. get dropped in front of a television. It's hard to understand what's going on. Fortnite you can understand it's bite size. And, and it's building a platform that's global and worldwide.
2: Ted, I see the NBA team owners, teams, um, and the league you know, developing interesting partnerships, whether it's Intel, other tech companies, whether it's streaming companies. Is that how you do it going forward? Or does it lead to more acquisitions of you guys kind of getting closer and closer?
9: Well, partnerships are very, very important, and we right now are very focused on giving a lot of value to our media partners. I think gaming and gambling, um, I was head of the, the NBA media committee, chairman of the media committee, and I saw that they wanted our content, but they were very nervous about what the future would hold because it's not so much cutting the cable. It's that young people never will sign up for it. And so so in this two-screen universe, if you can create an environment where people get deep into the data and engage before the game, during the game, after the game, be communicating, um, it's really, really good for the media partners, and that'll be really, really good for the league and the owners and and the players. So, do you have to do acquisitions,
2: or can you just do it through I, I, partnerships? I don't, I don't
9: think that the NBA will do acquisitions. I can see as though we're expanding um, globally. I think that that right now we're seeing with NBA Two K, it's possible that ten years from now, an NBA Two K player will be much more viewed and be a bigger star than the biggest star in North America who's playing in a building.
1: So got to ask you, you are widely uh, involved in Washington as an owner, as a citizen, as a community leader. We live in a very, shall we say, political time. Uh, you also are involved in the league here, the NBA, which has really encouraged social activism uh, among its players, mm-hmm. uh, among its owners. How do you strike that balance given the world we're living in?
9: Uh, I really believe that we have uh, enormous social responsibility running sports teams. We, um, we create these lifelong memories. We, we employ 4,000 people full time and part time. We're one of the biggest taxpayers in the city. And as I remind everyone, um, I'll be in my seat as an owner of Monumental Sports and Entertainment much longer than anyone will be in the White House or be in the mayor, we, we we represent the spirit and the culture. We, we're longevity. We have to be trusted in our community. We have to do the right things the right way and be very, very socially engaged. Our philanthropy is very, very important, the way that we want to um, structure the game day experience and how it touches. Um, Touches um, transportation, the business community. We helped to create an organization that was very instrumental in convincing or helping to convince Amazon to come to Washington, D.C. We really believe that we play, we punch way over our weight as a sports team in terms of being civic leaders. And I view what I do is I have to get reelected 82 times. I'm constantly (laughs) running campaigns just to make sure that our fans are engaged, that they trust us, that they like us, that they love the players, they love the game experience. But it's
2: a balance, especially as Jason was mentioning, like it's such a divisive political environment and you can have fans, love your team, but maybe don't love when a... Uh, a a player comes out and says something. How do you balance that? Um, The NFL's had a tough time with that.
9: Yeah, the NFL has, and we've been very fortunate in the NBA between our commissioner and our key players. um, LeBron James, Chris Paul, some of the leaders in the union have been very, very thoughtful. Uh, We have some leaders on our team. John Wall is unbelievably... Uh, conscious of giving back, Bradley Beal, who's an all-star, who's here. If you sat down and talked to Bradley, I mean, my last conversation with Brad, when we finished, I said, Brad, when you retire, you could be CEO of a company. Your thoughtfulness, your your cognizance of what customers want, what consumers want, your ability to provide vision and leadership is is what everyone aspires to. And so so they it used to be a generation said, we don't want to be role models. A lot of our players today really understand that they have a position of uh, great celebrity. They get paid a lot of money. Uh, Bradley loves a comment that I made to him, to those who much is given, much is expected. And he has internalized that. And so our players are leaders. And a lot of our fans and a lot of the young people take their cues from them and how they handle themselves. Health. I mean, all of our players now, it's not like the old days. Because so much money is involved that the players understand that their body is their temple. And so talking about hydration, talking about not doing drugs, talking about exercising, talking about getting sleep, eating well. Well, that will be focused on taking away one of our big issues, which is childhood obesity in our community. And so so doing those kinds of things that propel their careers also play a big role in society in creating an exemplar kind of environment for young people.
6: Okay,
1: got to ask you, what did Washington get right that New York got wrong when it comes to Amazon?
9: Um, I think it was a real communal uh, activity. We made sure that all of the universities worked very, very closely uh, with what Amazon needed. We made sure that the transportation system was going to be modified to make sure that they came. And it was just a very open and transparent kind of communication. And I don't know what's happened in New York, uh, but I do know that we're thrilled that Amazon is coming and we'll keep the lights on for them and work very, very closely with them.
1: So Ted Leon says, very much a smart guy. He's got some big thoughts about sports, also some big thoughts about where technology is going. You can catch our full conversation with him. We went everywhere on our Extra Weekend Podcast. It's our extended podcast and it's great stuff. And that wraps up this special edition of Bloomberg Business Week's Weekend Podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly.
2: And I'm Carol Master. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday
1: starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast for the ride home. Download, subscribe at I, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. And of course, you can get this week's edition of the magazine
2: on newsstands now.
1: You can also download the Bloomberg Business Week app.
2: We'll be back next week at the same time.
1: This is Bloomberg.